It's Pixar's wildly successful movie, Cars, from the year of our Lord, 2006. For those unaware, Cars is the story of a young, arrogant, and selfish race car named Lightning McQueen. But while stuck in the small town of Radiator Springs, Lightning learns valuable lessons about putting others ahead of himself, friendship, and working together as a team. The story is cute, charming, and tame. It's a wholesome tale about humility, kindness, and community. But in 2011, Pixar released Cars 2. And the sequel felt completely different than the original. It was full of scandal, intrigue, and even some violence. In general, audiences and critics did not respond well to this peculiar development in Lightning McQueen's story. For example, on the website Rotten Tomatoes, Cars 2 has a score of 5.5 out of 10. The New York Times said that Cars 2 was the first truly negative response to any Pixar movie. On top of that, it was the first Pixar film not to be nominated for an Oscar or for Best Animated Picture. Apparently, people didn't want danger, conspiracy, and thrills from the Cars franchise. They wanted a story that remained heartwarming, cozy, and safe. And when it comes to the Christmas story the birth of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding it, we may prefer the same thing. We like the familiar parts about the faithful virgin Mary, the obedient Joseph, the rustic manger, the adorable animals, the humble shepherds, and the joyful angels. It all just looks so pleasant on cards, ornaments, and nativity scenes. But then you get to Matthew 2, and that's when the metaphorical sequel to this heartwarming Christmas story takes a dark turn. We go from a sweet tale about a new baby to a shocking chapter filled with mysterious wise men, a ruthless king, and a flight of fear under the cover of night. But as disturbing unwelcome, and peculiar, as this part of the story may be, compared to what comes before, and as inappropriate as it may feel for Christmas cards, Matthew, too, plays an important role in helping us understand who Jesus is and how we must respond to him. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that, as we said earlier, after the whirlwind that has likely been the past week or two, that we can gather here and worship you on Sunday morning. I pray that you'd watch over us as we do that. May our prayers, may our reading, may our study, may our singing, may our remembering Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross, may it all bring you glory. 
I pray that you would build us up as your sons and daughters, your saints, your servants. Comfort us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, and remind us of who you are and who we are as a result of your grace. Thank you again for this passage that we read this morning. As peculiar as it might seem compared to the rest of the Christmas story, thank you for your word, including this chapter. And I pray that we would read your word, understand your word with the help of your spirit and apply it to our lives in ways that glorify you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, And frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's get our sea legs under us by examining some of the main characters of this story. First, let's meet the villain. That's King Herod. Herod was the ruler of Judea appointed by Octavius Caesar himself. That said, Herod was never the true king of the Jews in any legitimate sense. In fact, he was only half Jewish himself and had no ancestral claim to any throne. But even worse than that, by this point late in his life, Herod had degenerated into a paranoid and bloodthirsty tyrant. He had multiple potential rivals, including his own wife, sons, and friends, imprisoned, strangled, or accidentally drowned. In short, Herod would do anything to anyone at any time in order to maintain his grip on power. That's the villain. So second, let's meet these mysterious wise men. 
Some translations say magi. These strange figures were some mix of magician, astrologer, and diplomat. They were fascinated with global affairs and would travel long distances to keep tabs on political developments. But most significantly, they were pagans. They were Gentiles in line with Pharaoh's magicians in the book of Exodus, Nebuchadnezzar's enchanters in the book of Daniel, or the false prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers. But even though that generic title, wise men, may make them sound a little less problematic than they really were, we do have to hand it to them. They come off looking much better in this story than that wicked King Herod we just introduced. After all, the wise men appear with the explicit intent of worshiping Jesus, the newly born King of the Jews. Meanwhile, the religious leaders in Jerusalem appear a bit clueless and unconcerned about the whole thing. I mean, shouldn't they, of all people, have been more interested in the potential birth of the Messiah? And as for Herod, the supposed king of the Jews, he does not take kindly to this whole series of events. Without the wise men's knowledge, he begins plotting an assassination. But thankfully, the sinister King Herod is not as powerful as he thinks he is. There is someone else directing things. Someone who can maneuver stars. Someone who can speak to people in dreams. We pick up in verse 13. Now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You know, this is not the first time that a ruthless king plotted the death of a Jewish baby boy. That story takes place in the book of Exodus. That king's name was Pharaoh. And the baby boy protected by God was named Moses. Moses would eventually go on to lead God's people out of Egyptian slavery. This baby, Jesus Christ, will eventually lead God's people out of a far worse form of slavery. But for now, in an ironic twist, 
Jesus must go in to Egypt, not out. It's worth noticing that God saved Moses through the faithful and risky obedience of a loving mother. God saves Jesus through the faithful and risky obedience of a loving stepfather. The point is that God often works through the faithful and risky obedience of people like them and people like us. But as we see in verses 16 through 18, wicked kings like Herod don't like it when God prevents them from getting their way. To Herod, Jesus was no savior, no Messiah, no Lord. And he was not about to hand him his crown. To Herod, Jesus was a threat to eliminate. Jesus' mere presence put Herod's power, autonomy, and control in jeopardy. And that's why he takes such violent action in this chapter. We may find it hard to believe that something like the deaths of all those male children in or around the small town of Bethlehem could possibly be historically true. It's an atrocity. But for Herod, the events of verses 16 through 18, they're just another day in the office. Yet according to Matthew, even this gruesome development does not fall outside of God's sovereignty. The prophets of old spoke about such things, warned of such things. Again, even when he's ordering the death of innocent children with the snap of his fingers, Herod is not as powerful as he thinks he is. And as hard to swallow as this part of the story is, that is good news. We continue in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So like Moses in the book of Exodus, Jesus does eventually return home. As the prophet Hosea alluded to generations earlier, God calls Jesus out of Egypt. But the family does not go back to Bethlehem, where the story began. Archelaus, King Herod's older son, was almost as vicious and almost as unstable as his father. And Bethlehem is too close to Jerusalem for comfort. So instead... Again, being warned in a dream, Joseph takes his family to Galilee to settle in an unremarkable town called Nazareth. Now, of all the peculiar things we've read this morning, verse 23 may be one of the most perplexing. 
That's because we have no idea which prophet or prophets Matthew is referencing. In fact, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. But if nothing else, as we've seen him drive home repeatedly throughout this chapter, Matthew does not view Jesus' residence in Nazareth as an accident. So if you put it all together, after all the heartwarming features of the Christmas story, the faithful Virgin Mary, the rustic manger, the adorable animals, the humble shepherds, and the joyful angels, the sequel that is Matthew 2 feels odd. Watching a sequel like this may leave you feeling a bit whiplashed. But part of why Matthew tells us these things is to confirm that Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Matthew explains to us how Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, ended up in Nazareth. And why coming from Nazareth does not disqualify him from being the Messiah. In the movie Cars, good things can come from tiny radiator springs. Likewise, Matthew sets out to prove how and why the Messiah came from Nazareth. But he also shows us that Jesus is a new and better Moses. This baby boy will one day save God's people, not from making bricks, not from building pyramids, not from physical chains. He will save them from sin, death, and judgment through his cross and through his resurrection. And finally, Matthew teaches us, especially with all of those references to the Old Testament prophets, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. That's true even if the mysterious pagan wise men didn't fully understand it. And even if the evil King Herod was viciously opposed to it. Now that alone is all good to know. If nothing else, you can leave this morning, I hope, with a better understanding of this peculiar sequel to the more heartwarming parts of the Christmas story. But I also can't blame you for asking what practical impact Matthew 2 might have on our daily lives right now. Well, I'd encourage you to think of it this way. When you come back to church next Sunday, in the year of our Lord 2024, all of the Christmas decorations will be down. There will be no more tree, no more candles, and no more lights. Life here, and life in most other places, I assume, will start going back to normal, whether we like it or not. There will be no more presents, no more stockings, no more gingerbread cookies, no more days off, and no more family gatherings. You'll have deadlines, homework, appointments, and chores to worry about again, not to mention tax season lurking around the corner. It won't be Christmas anymore. 
And during Christmas, it's fairly natural, maybe even easy, to respond to Jesus like the wise men. We worship him. We offer him gifts. We use all kinds of wonderful titles to describe him. All of a sudden, people who never darken the door of a church throw Jesus a bone for at least one month. We welcome him as king with open arms. But here's my question for you today. Will you do the same thing in January? How about March? May? July? September? November? I ask because welcoming Jesus as king isn't just something we do at Christmas. It's something we do year-round. Jesus is king of more than just the holiday season. And as king, Jesus has something to say about that affair you're considering, that alcohol you're abusing, that spouse you're neglecting, that career you're idolizing, that worldly approval you're seeking, that money you're hoarding, that grudge we're nursing, that ambition we're feeding, that porn we're watching, that pride we're inflating, or whatever other sin it is that we're hiding. And when we see that Jesus' rule extends beyond the month of December, when he becomes a real threat to our power, autonomy, or control over our lives for the rest of the year, we may start to respond to his presence less like the friendly neighborhood wise men and more like the villainous Herod. We may find ourselves doing things we once considered unthinkable in order to maintain our place on the throne of our wants, our goals, and our priorities over and against his. Matthew makes it clear in this chapter that Jesus is the true king of the Jews. And as he writes the rest of his gospel, he makes it clear that even more than that, Jesus is the true king of the whole world. That's why he commands his followers to make disciples of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And you know what that means, don't you? If Jesus is the real king, it means that we're not as powerful as we think we are. We're not the kings and queens we imagine ourselves to be. So the question becomes, will we worship King Jesus beyond Christmas and into the entire new year ahead of us? even when he threatens our sense of power and makes inconvenient demands of us? Or will we desperately cling to our supposed crowns? Much later in the New Testament, another Herod, the younger son of the Herod we read about this morning, responds poorly to Jesus. In this case, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Jesus goes on to die a horrific and unjust death, partly thanks to this king. It may have taken 30 plus years to prove it, but it looks like Jesus isn't the king after all. Herod Jr. 
finally finished his dad's job. But like he was at the beginning of Jesus's life, using the angels, dreams, and even an infamous place like Egypt that we read about this morning, God will be directing events at the end of Jesus's life, too. He'll use a traitor, a few more wicked rulers, and even a terrifying tool like a cross to accomplish his purposes. Jesus's death will prove to be no accident. Instead, it will prove to be a sacrifice. And Jesus's tomb will prove to not be his final resting place. It will prove to be only temporary. And one day our risen king will come again in power and glory. The challenge, of course, is being ready then. By letting Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of our lives right now. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Christmas story that we've had the pleasure and the joy of revisiting year after year after year, but these past four or five Sundays at Prairie View this year. Thank you for all the things that we remember so well, all the things that we treasure, all the things that we celebrate, all the things that we love. But Lord, thank you also for this part of the Christmas story, this challenging, maybe jarring sequel to the heartwarming birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Thank you for the details that Matthew gives us, inspired by your spirit, to help us understand that Jesus is the king of the Jews and the king of the whole world, to help us understand how and why Jesus ended up in Nazareth, to help us see how Jesus is a new and better Moses, delivering us from something far worse than Egypt. And Lord, thank you that this is true not just for people in a faraway place in a far distant time, but it's true for people like us in the year 2023, and it will be true for people like us tomorrow in the year 2024. So Lord, I pray that we would welcome you as king that we would give you the glory, ascribe to you the honor that is due your name as king, as Lord, as Savior, as Messiah. That we wouldn't just do it in the month of December when it's somewhat natural, maybe even easy, when it's societally acceptable. Lord, I pray that we would worship you and honor you, praise you, obey you, love you, in January and February and March and the entire calendar year ahead of us. Help us welcome you as the king that you are. Help us love you, believe in you, and obey you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.